If you enjoy the conversations in this podcast and want to help us continue to provide great content for the community, please consider supporting our work by becoming a friend of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the JCC. As a friend, you'll receive insider access to artists and VIP events, special passes to arts programs, and unique gifts from the JCC. To learn more, please visit jccmanhattan.org slash friends hyphen AI. Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. This week, Abigail Pogrebin interviews author Nathan Englander as part of Abby's ongoing series at the JCC, What Everyone's Talking About. Nathan Englander is the author of the novels Dinner at the Center of the Earth, The Ministry of Special Cases, and Kaddish.com. He is responsible for the story collections For the Relief of Unbearable Urges and What We Talk About When We Talk About Anne Frank. Englander's short fiction has been widely anthologized, including in 100 Years of the Best American Short Stories. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience on April 17th, 2019. Nathan, before Pesach, could it be more perfect? Um, are you guys out there? Okay. Hi, everyone. You, you Before can... we talk about Kaddish.com, I just want to say about Zabars.com, Saul, my entire meal is coming through the website. So I've been very lazy this year. I'm relying on Zabars. I will let you all know how it goes. I hope it arrives because I have no backup plan. Um, but happy Passover, everyone. I'm so delighted to have you here. I told Nathan he could interrupt me, and he said that wouldn't be a problem. No, it really would not. I, that's in my... Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out tonight, especially before Pesach. And I'm so taking this branded Zabar's mug back to Zabar's. <laughs> you are. It's but, your party uh, favor. It literally, it's in my story in the what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank, but that hand on the knee. Like, my wife is not from New York, and some of her friends are not from New York. And that was when we started dating under the table. It meant, like, someone else is trying to talk. Like, I feel like in New York rules, if you... Literally, if you can't talk over someone, if you can't hold, if someone can take the conversation from you, you probably shouldn't be talking. That's a good way to begin. And, and since um, we're in our Passover mode, I just want to touch on your Haggadah, which is beautiful, and we've used it. It's amazing. But I have to say, the idea of translating it is not necessarily something you've done before. And because you're sitting here, I'd love the chance to know what that felt like and whether oh. you yourself, now that you have a, a little family, or yes. it's probably a little bit over a four-year-old's head. Yes. Um, not a Brooklyn four-year-old. We're like, <laughs> time. We're, yes. I've already paid to have her head photoshopped onto a rower. We've already started. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but uh, not true. She'll be fine. Tfu, tfu, tfu. No expectations. Just be happy and healthy. Anyway. <laughs> But to that notion, first thing, like we were talking about touring, I've been, I've, you know, been on the road. I'm just back to town uh, so that my wife could travel. We tapped in and out, but uh, she'll be back tomorrow. We also ordered Pesach, which it's hard to explain. People think Jews cooking, cooking, but there's such a sweet New York thing of ordering yeah. your Seder. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> press that button. Um, oh, but just having toured this book, and I can't believe I'm saying it because 
literally for the first decade of my career, people were like, what are you doing? I'd say, I write book. I was so slow. But I just got this novel in under the wire of 20 years. So I averaged for, you know, four years. But literally there's a year between this book and the last book. And I have to say, touring, you'd think touring a book, especially, and thank you for like uh, local support and neighborhood support and Jewish support. I love all the, you know, my anchor people, like I'm so thankful, but you'd think it was so much more controversial touring a Haggadah than touring an Israel-Palestine book. (laughs) I have to say, it was really interesting to me because people are really protected. It's, there's, I don't know that there's any other like ancient text or text that, you know, everyone, there's not like, there's not like a six book Bible or one where there's like Adam and Eve and this guy, Mike, you know what I'm saying? There's very clear stories, but I got to, you make your own. And I, I, it's, you know, uh, it's almost NRA-like, where I'd be like, I'm not taking your Haggadah. You can keep yours. But it was really fascinating, people's dedication to tradition. But yes, it was Jonathan Safran Foer's idea, and I really didn't want to do it. And I'm sure we'll talk about it tonight, because maybe that sort of experience maybe partly inspired this book or informed this book. But I, I work so hard on being radically secular. I'm like, I don't want to do this religious project. And he's not only like a brilliant writer, but he really, I, I don't ever have a double thread where I'm trying to convince someone of something. He really knows the inside of my brain in a scary manner, but he really convinced me to do that project. And it, it was really changed the way I write. I'm so thankful I did it. He said, we're really going to be thankful, like you're going to love doing this. And it was it was so wonderful to spend so much time. It's even though dinner is really, really, really long. If you look at the text, it's so short to spend that much time translating, you know, what is in the end, basically like a long poem, you know, and mostly from Genesis, I, I Exodus, but I'm saying from, you know, the Bible. And your Hebrew is that fluent or did you have to like go back? Uh, to- it, it gets, it gets a, it, it disappears more every year. The other book that got mentioned was a, uh, Edgar Carrot that I translated. We translated each other. That's a other thing that was really sweet. Like people, agents were like, what are you going to get paid? We didn't want to get paid. I translated him. Hmm. He translated me. Is really sweet. But I call it like Sfat Ahava, like the language of love. I literally don't speak Hebrew except with Edgar now. But uh, yeah, I, I used to be pretty, I lived in Israel for a lot of years and spoke Hebrew when I lived there and had a, you know, a yeshiva education for what that's worth. But uh, you know, yes, it, it's pretty good. And I studied. What I did is I found someone uh, old school, the way I learned it as a kid, which is to study. If you're studying something religious and Torah-like, you studied in a pair. So I found this guy who loves the arts, this theater guy and movie guy who was uh, a former, like he'd finished Lubavitch Smicha. So he was fallen like me, but he like a real great mind. And I hired him and then he just became central to the project. And we studied together, which which gets back to my dichotomy. Like I had no mezuzah on the door of that apartment. And my wife's like, we don't have a mezuzah, but you, we're living in a study hall. Like that's the bizarre conflict. And you're very close to Jonathan Safran Foyer. Yes. Like is that it's a real friendship? It's not just a work kind of collaboration. Like, yeah. He's not here to deny it. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, did you ever yeah. argue while you were... I mean, creating this, did there, was there ever times you disagreed? Uh, was the path pretty uh, oh, clear? Yes, it was really clear. No, it's a pleasure working together when we're friends from the beginning or before. Like back to, we just did this event and uh, he's younger than me, which I say because he never lets me forget that. But he talks about like, you know, before he met me, like those writing friends, if you read each other, like be, before I met him, I read his book in manuscript. You know I'm saying he'd read me before he met me. The friendship started for both of us before we even met each other because we you read each other and then you meet the person. But no, it was really clear, his editorial thing. I think the conflict for him 
he thinks there's no book that's ever been made more expensive because of kill fees. He originally wanted like, you know, a hundred people involved. He commissioned all these things and then the plan changed. So yes, he had a, have a lot of, I'm sure, painful letters to say thank you for this, but no, we worked together. I was the translator. I had a job. I was a hired translator. So I just did my job. And you said you should literally read the Haggadah and weep, that it is um, the most living document. Tell us what you mean by that. Oh, it's extraordinary. I mean, I was just obsessing about it this week. I feel really close to it. First of all, the job of translation on that book is I understood there's certain things that you don't translate. Like I suddenly got my childhood. Like I don't think, you know, I learned enough Hebrew that I recognize that moment where I'm like, oh, I'm not searching for words. Like I remember sitting in Jerusalem and just thinking like, should I have a sandwich? But I was like, oh, wait a second. This is Hebrew. You know what I'm saying? Like you're, but those texts that you say every year, it's like, I just, you know, I just wanted people to feel like what it feels like. You're a translator. Your job is to give the spirit of it. But to the content of it, this is the year of Passover. This is going to be some painful seders. We are literally, you know, the president has said the country is full. We are separating. It is such an extraordinary grave sin. You don't have to say as Jews or whatever. But what is Exodus? I mean, to think about that story, there's two ways to read it. It's a caravan that went north and then killed everyone. You know what I'm saying? That's They burned down Jericho. They knocked the walls down. They took the silver. Like, you can either read this as a beautiful story of freedom from slavery and people going to a better place and a better life and a journey, or you can read it the other way, which is they ruined Egypt and then they went up and, you know, invaded and took, you know, so yes, it is always back to it being a living, vibrant thing. Like every year your reading of it changes. And I think the American Passover this year, if you're going to, you start the Seder by saying, halach ma'anya, like literally, like all who are hungry, come and eat. Like all, you know, who are in need, come Passover with. It is a, do not say that if you don't want to help other people. Skip Start on page five, please, because you can't say that if you don't mean it. So before we get to Kaddish.com, so people understand not everyone sees the arc of your kind of Jewish journey, but yes. it, there is already, as you said, some kind of contradictions in the sense that you were raised with a tremendous amount of education and observance and have kind of come in and out of it since, but you, you really walked away. Oh, it. yeah. So yes. Can you tell I, us why? Oh, uh, I compare it like there's so many. It would seem odd to me. I've obviously thought about this a lot. My job is to sit alone in a room all day. Like people change. Like that's the point. You get told this is your world. And then some people say like, oh, this is not the world for me. Like you can grow up in a Democratic household and be a Republican or a Republican household be a Democrat. That's what kids are for. You know what I'm saying? To like torture their parents, you know, like that's the point. Like, or you grow up in a super heteronormative house. I'm so glad the world is changing. I will not see it go back the other way. Like not this country, but like it used to be when my age, when friends came out, that was like a really big deal. Cause you've been, you know, a lot of them had been told there's only one way to be like, this is how you are. And that, you know, I very carefully and gingerly compare it to that, which is I was told there was, there was, and I get my family's position and they're wonderful with me and supportive and we've really bridged things like we have no conflict that way. But if you ask my mom, what is religion? She'd be like, well, it has the, you know, probably there's some element about being religious to religion, you know, but I just thought there's only one way to be like, it, it, you know, it's all hazy to me, like the Catholic girl across the street. That's all a haze. There weren't even other kinds of Jews. You know what I'm saying? There's one way to be, which is 
you know, religious. And what religious means is what we say it means. But I think I always felt other, like, and I just, I really just thought this is my life. This is how I will be. And I will be unhappy. You know, like this is the route. And it was one of my roommate, I went to college, which was already rebellious. We're like, you either went to YU or lived at home and went to Queens College. Those are your choices after a year in yeshiva. But I was already like very Maimonides. I wanted and I just wanted to be around books and I fought to go to, you know, state school, Binghamton. What state schools should do is give you access to change your life. If you, you know, back to the joke I made at the beginning, if you if you didn't study for the SATs as I didn't, there should be, or if you don't have the money, which we didn't, like it really changed my life. But I got a kosher roommate because that's what we did. And I ate in the kosher kitchen. I was a religious guy. He dragged me to Jerusalem junior year. And the first week there is where I saw a functioning secular cultural Judaism that I didn't know existed that made sense to me and I stopped being religious the first week in Israel. <laughs> and you said that Israel allowed you to be an American in a way for the first time. Yeah, I mean, uh, Philip Roth passed away this year and uh, back to friendships. I had a nice friendship with him, but like people, you know, there's all the, you know, back to the Jonathan event, you get compared, people talking about who you get linked to and tied to, but it like, his generation, that's like my father's generation. I feel like that generation of Jewish people like fought so hard to be American. You know, like my dad went to public school in Brooklyn. I literally like down the block from me. Why did he not buy five apartments for me for $18? I don't know. <laughs> he was smart. It was Brooklyn, you know, it was Brooklyn Tech. He was, you know, so, but uh, nonetheless, like, you know, they were, you know, stickball playing, but kosher, but religious like this, or, you know, Philip not, but this idea, they fought so hard to be Americans that they got to, that they did it, that they got to rebuild the shtetl for us, you know, so I feel like, you know, that I had this weird other experience that skips like a generation before on that. But you front. also had bullying, I mean. Yes. That was sort of surprised me, this is in Hempstead, right? West Hempstead. West Hempstead. Yes, it was a very clear grid where it was like, Jews, Italians, people of color, and then wasps. I know this one writer, she said, like, literally her family moved, like, two blocks across, like, the Italian line to the wasp. And she's like, we stopped getting Christmas cards. They were like, we made it. They're like, we are done with Franklin Square. But what was the bullying like? Oh, you know what? I, uh, I write fiction. Like, that's how I express myself. It changed. Uh, I wrote a piece after Charlottesville. It's the first time I wrote, like, a, it just was clear to me like what I wanted to talk about. I wrote, a, I wrote a story called How We Avenge the Blooms about that, like one of the incidents. And then I wrote this op-ed, which was really kind of life-changing for me. It made me just to understand how to talk to people differently about this stuff. What was it like? You know what? It's time. Uh, I guess what it was like is something that happened that I thought was gone, that I will not have come back. You know, we are letting it come back. There will always be people who do certain things. They need to live in shame and stay in their holes. Like, that's it. You know what I'm saying? You hate this people, that race, this religion. Like, go be ashamed. We're losing shame and everyone's coming out. So, yes, what it was was a thing that happened that I thought was over, you know? And that is back in a big way. You know, I twice lately I've been on the subway with my kid sitting next to a swastika, like, carved. Into, mm. like, I grew up with that. I don't want to see that again, it's my city, you know what I'm saying? Because, and when I say my city, I mean our city for people who like to live together and take care of each other. But what it was like is so not troubling, just is. It's, I, I'm older now, it's something I look back on, which is to build a Jewish community, you need a shul, you need an Arab so you, for, uh, around the town so you can carry things. You need a mikvah to dip if you're a mikvah dip, dipper. You need a kosher pizza place and you need some anti-Semites to chase you home. Like that, 
it's to me like how you build the terrarium of Jewish life. At one point you said, uh, you wrote, my mother raised me very clearly that if you cross the street, you will die. If you go outside, you will die. If you play sports, you will likely die. That's what I was getting at home. Oh, I I just, I was literally just talking about that before we came up here. Literally that statement came out of my mouth from wherever it comes from. I hadn't thought about it. What a crazy thing of the serendipities of things like, I have not said that in years, but I just said it, you know, two minutes ago. Yeah. Like, uh. Yes, we uh, she will, We call her the danger police. We have a great WhatsApp group. Not a joke, a WhatsApp group. She's very uh, technologically adept oh. with all my nephews, but literally be like, pistachio bag number 6742 has a recall. Like, she will tell you, you know, I will add you all on it. She wants to save you too. But uh, yes, like she told me always to be afraid, and it has worked. I am very, very afraid. <laughs> Um, so let's get to Kaddish.com. First of all, the what do you do? You remember sort of how it, it was, you know, t- took form, took you know, flight in your mind as an idea, and you, it seems like you wrote it faster than most books. Oh, yes. I didn't know. I I know those like apocryphal stories of like Faulkner was working at the you know coal mine you know for the night shift, and he wrote as I lay dying in 17 hours. Like I've heard those stories. I just didn't know that they come to you that way, and I don't know that it will ever happen again. But yes, it was almost like a fever. Mm. Again, I rewrote like crazy. I mean, literally at the end, I torture everyone. They sent me my bio. I don't even write my bio. Someone changed a comma, and maybe there were like 9,000 emails and 1,400. I go crazy at the end for sure. I don't publish something to like when people I, – I sometimes get asked that question, would you ever change anything? And I was like, it wouldn't be out in the world. You know, I, it very much scares me when people are like, oh, I should have given that book six more months. But, yes, there was lots of good old-school hair-pulling and torture. But, yes, I wrote – it's usually three years to a rough draft. It was – Three months, you know, really. Mm-hmm. And I started the day after I finished the last one, and I'd already mentioned Philip Roth, but he told me, he had told me about finishing a book and going, he lived on the, right here. Oh, yeah, I think he, he swam here. But, uh, like, he, you know, uh, he would, you know, talked about finishing a novel and going to the Natural History Museum and looking up at the whale and being like, now what do I do, look at the whale all day? And he went home and started the next one. <laughs> and, you know, and I was like, that is not, Bad advice that wasn't given as advice, just said offhand. So you just go from one to another. Yeah, that was really, it, it really, and it was just right there and ready. But I, but back to its inspiration, I could give you all the highfalutin writerly stuff. Like, again, I'm in interview mode. Like, it's all there. But back to you coming out of your houses and the true honest thing, I, I finally recognized, um, I finally recognized like how a part of my brain works with story, which is I love jokes, but jokes have no mass. They're not realities. They have no meaning. They are, they are by definition a joke. But I, I thought back to the start of my career, like I used to have long flowing curls, like, you know, picture share, early share, like that, that's who would play me in the movie. But um, I'd go to like my religious sisters for Shabbat dinner over in Lincoln Towers. They're not there anymore, just to keep it neighborhood. But uh and I remember her friends would like, you know, her head covering friends would be like, I could make a great wig out of that. That's funny. That's a joke. I thought it was really funny. But then when I think about adding like a reality to it, then I thought of like a Hasidic woman who like makes wigs for a living, who's obsessed with good hair and her, you know, a woman who wouldn't even, you know, talk to a 
be alone with a, you know, single man in her community, you know, alone in a room. I thought about her being in like Chelsea in the flower district and seeing someone with unbelievable curls and needing to have that hair, you know, like that's how joke turns into like story to me into a universe. But I guess back to how we started this about talking about me flipping and that switch like, I recognize all my friends tease me about it. My wife teases me about it. Like, I am so hair trigger. Like, I'll tell you, I will, you know, going to eat bread on Passover. I'll eat a cheeseburger on Yom Kippur. I'm just not religious. But then, like, my wife is, you know, she'll catch me, like, tithing for a harvest year. You know, she'll be like, I saw that. I'll do either something utterly obscure. Basically, she's very afraid she's going to come home like a, you know, like a Woody Allen movie. And I'll be nailing up three mezuzahs and have a beard to the floor. And I thought about that. Back to that switch. We support one switch. You know, you can say like, oh, I'm, you know, as I said, switching parties or I'm going to stop drinking. We will support you on that journey. We won't be like, it's been enough of the sobriety or like, you know, if you're religious, we got you. But I thought, wouldn't it be natural? Like there's that, that sister was just up. We had Shabbat dinner at my mom's a couple of weeks ago. Like take an extra Zantac. You'll be fine with the, you know, stuffed cabbage and whatever. Like I love the food. I love the songs. Like it was so lovely. I was like, wouldn't it be just normal for me to just one day be like, actually, I miss that. Like, this is who I am. And when I thought of, there's a Hebrew term, which obsesses me, the opposite of the opposite. But I thought, what about someone who's born again, again? And that really was the core idea for Larry, who after 20 pages in this book, it's 20 years later, there's a 20 year elision, a jump. And, uh, and he becomes Shuli, like he's born again, again, and ends up, you know, very black hat teaching Gemara at his old you know, yeshiva. So why don't you just lay out kind of what happens basically for those who haven't read it yes. yet, which is a Shonda, but they can get it yes. tonight. Um, oh, so if you're going to tell a story, like it needs to be a pressurized form. So like back, you know, my father, I've been thinking about that has been passed away for, you know, a decade. Like we bridge those things in my mm -hmm. family. And I wonder how much the politics of the day, because the bridges are gone, communications are gone. We have separate realities to the point that I haven't seen it's like when you go through customs and they're like, did you go to a farm? Did you track anything? And I feel like I brought from Jerusalem the idea of two different realities back. Like maybe I tracked it in when I moved home and it spread. But we made that work in my family. And that's not a very interesting novel. So if I was thinking about that pressure and that conflict, if you want to look at a family with this space between them, I could think of nothing larger than the Kaddish. So Larry... His sister has moved down to Memphis because of her husband. They're Orthodox. Their father has died. She is not egalitarian. She doesn't want the Mechitza to come down. Like She thinks a man has to say Kaddish. The surviving son has to say Kaddish. It is critically important to her. Their father is religious. It is cr critically important to him that Larry, the surviving son, be the one to say this. But I thought about it. And again, for Kaddish, if you say it, it's 11 months you say it in a minute, you have to go to shul three times a day. You say the prayer eight times a day. I thought this is the ideal thing because a secular person can't do it. It is too much to ask someone. It is literally, it's just not going to happen. And also, if it doesn't happen and you believe, then daddy burns in the hellfires. The stakes are really high and that's where the story starts. And and when she says, will you say it? And she gets the town rabbi, they face him. And he says, sure, I'll do it. And that's when the sister really gets angry because saying maybe I can't, she'd have believed him, but saying he would. Point is, I'm obsessed with Jewish ideas of proxy. I love them. I was just in Moscow in December for book tour. My mother gave me $18 to give to charity when I get there. 
You know, I found a pushka like four hours off the plane. I found a tzedakah box with a picture of the Rebbe above it. Boom, dropped it right in. But that's the idea is that I'm no longer on the journey. I am a proxy for her. I am on a mission to give charity. And what a dumb example to use two days before Passover. Religious Jews collect up all their chametz and then you sell it to a kindly Gentile. That is a proxy. They are representing the town. You know, it's so I thought it's a very ancient thing to have a, proxy for the, I'm not the one who invented a family that doesn't work and doesn't have someone to say the Kaddish. So he needs to say it. It's on him. And uh, back to guilt and shame and things explored in the book, he's looking at pornography, which is very guilty for Larry. And he ends up on a site called Kaddish.com and hires someone to say the prayer when he's born again, again, and he's living this life and a whole life and has a wife, Miri, and two kids, and he's a happy man and living his life. He, uh, one of his students does not say Kaddish. He finds out that he's hiding that his father has died because it happened in the summer. And it so knocks him off his seat because he recognizes when you make these deals, he made a Kenyan. He recognizes when he signed up for Kaddish.com, he gave his father's soul away, like Asav in the Bible, like with the lentils. And that is the engine for this book, which is surely, he wants to make it right with his father and his sister and his kids and his wife and himself and all that stuff. But he needs to get his father's soul back. That is the whole engine for the rest of the book. And um, I want you to read a, a little bit from it, but just so we really understand the stakes, what happens if it's not said? What's the belief of what is it? Oh, yeah, being- literally, I mean... Uh, I yeah I always call heaven and hell. They're such newfangled Jewish notions. Like I you know I don't even think it's the Christians. Maybe it's it's the Romans or the Greeks. We got it from one of them. That's not us. Like I love thing that's written down. Back to the again, it's America. We're we're already like before the last election. We were working on 2020. The picking and choosing from the Bible. There's a lot of stuff there. Own it if it's in there. Like don't pick one. This is the important one, and then ignore the other. You know, stranger in a strange land. You know, you want to be like I'm a homophobe. Like. Don't be, but also it says very clearly if anyone crosses this border, you don't not only don't kick them out, you have to give them your stuff. Like they get to live with it's very clear. But I like Sha'ol, like later the limbo state. Jews had limbo, which I love. You know, you can we had the witch, the Machshefa, the witch of Eindor. We had witches, like that's that chapter gets spoke. I, I want the witches back. <laughs> oh, but I, the notion of Olam Haba, I love it is a single world to come, which I address in this book. They would do not torture, they uh. The early stories, like when I was little, uh, I keep thinking, can I tell this stories? Yeah. Yeah. I keep thinking of this. uh, I keep talking about them as if they're long dead, these teachers from grade school, because they seem so old. But, you know, if you look at a picture of your first grade teacher, you're like, oh, I think she was 27. I thought she was 80. But uh, so maybe they're like 52. But I think she's probably not. She seemed very, very old. But like, so there's happy stories when you're a kid. Like I literally, you know, I learned the burning bush like. This teacher on her knees on the linoleum with her shoes off, holy ground. Like she would, we acted out the whole Bible. Like and for the burning bush, she literally filled the classroom. She set the garbage pail on fire. She started a fire. None of my teachers belonged in a classroom, some for good and some for bad. She in a good way. But once you hit puberty, the rabbis become terribly afraid you're going to kiss an Italian girl. It tortures them. And then the stories change, you know. So you get these notions of it's just Olam Haba, one world, the world to come. It's singular. So what is the world to come? You are watching a movie of your life and God is sitting on one side and your mother's on the other. That is a very mean version. But for the case of this, the person saying the Kaddish, it's like I'm very legalistic. I'm obsessed by rules. Like, is your advocate on this earth? It is literally so they will feel less of the hellfires. Like, it is, you are 
advocating for them. And so much of you, their lawyers, I love this. The judgment period is for 12 months. I bet a lot of this room knows this, but it's for 12 months and we only advocate for 11 because nobody in our family is so bad they need all 12. Like I find that so beautiful. Seventy Six West is brought to you by Zabar's and Zabar's.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabar's. Respect the customer. Never ever stint on quality. Offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store at 80th and Broadway or visit zabars.com for mouthwatering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 50 United States and Puerto Rico. So there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. Okay, will you read a little bit? Oh, sure. <laughs> I just happen to have a book and my glasses. <laughs> I'll just read for like I always say because I panic in an audience. I'm like, how long is someone going to read for? Um, I'll read for like three minutes and eight seconds. Okay. Oh, I bet that's what this will take. Cottage.com, mirrors covered in front door ajar, collar torn and sporting a shadow of beard. Larry leans against the granite top of his sister's fancy kitchen island. He says, everyone's staring at me, all of your friends. That's what people do, Dina tells him. They come, they say kind things, they feel uncomfortable and they stare. It's only hours after the funeral and honestly, Larry hates himself for bringing it up. He really thought nothing could add to the despair of his father's loss, but this, this quiet, muttering stream of well-wishers has made it, for Larry, all the worse. What he's taking issue with is the look that he's getting. It's not the usual pain nod one naturally offers. Larry's convinced there's a bite to it, condemning. He doesn't know how he'll survive a week trapped in his sister's home, in his sister's community, when every time one of the visitors glances over, Larry feels himself appraised. And so he keeps raising his hand to the top of his head, checking for the yarmulke, sitting there like a hubcap for all its emotional weight. Its absence at his own father's shiva would be the same as standing naked before them. Sneaked off into the kitchen with his sister, their first moment alone, Larry unloads his complaints in a hiss. Tell them, he says, to stop looking my way. At a condolence call, you want them not to look at the... Dina pauses. What are we? The condoled? The aggrieved? We are the grievances. The mourners, she says. You want them not to show that they care. I want them not to judge me just because I left their stupid world. Dina laughs, her first since they put their father into the ground. This is so like you, his sister tells him, to make it negative, to complicate what can't be any more simple. This bitterness in the face of what is pure niceness is on you. On me? Are you kidding? Are you really saying that today? You know that I am, little brother. I love you, Larry. But if you choose even, yes, today to throw one of your fits, my fits, don't yell, Larry, people can hear. 
the people. Oh, that's nice. I mean it, Larry says, thinking that fit may not be a completely inappropriate word. Go on then, curse at the terrible people who will cook for us and feed us and drive carpool for me all week and make sure that we don't mourn alone. Yes, curse at the nice men who washed our father's body and prepared the shroud and laid the shards atop his eyes and now come to make a minion in this house. Spare me, Dina. It's my morning too, and I should get to feel at home in your home as much as them. Who's saying different? But you have to understand they aren't used to it, Larry. Used to what you do. Dina takes a breath, reorganizing her thoughts. Memphis Jews are even more conservative than the ones we grew up with. In Brooklyn, even the edgeless have an edge. Here, if you're going to be radical, people may a little bit stare. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I just have to add to that scene because it was so uh, resonant. They're chopped and cracking carrots. This is just so yeah. every shiva suspended mid-dip over bowls of crusted hummus and baba ganoush. <laughs> yeah. um, how much do you try consciously to avoid the kind of Jewish trap of stereotype? Like, do you are you so kind of confident in your own authenticity, which obviously we've seen all these years, that you don't think those landmines are there, if that makes sense, uh, for a writer? You're... Uh it is all the writer's obligation. And I recognize I, I literally uh, take to my fainting couch. I, I saying like, this is even I say, I'm like, this is my most Jewish book yet. And then I'm like, but if the other books are already the most Jewish a book can be like, how can it be more Jewish than the most Jewish? Like, but I don't, this is going to annoy everyone. This is about objectification. Like, you know, if I write in this book, someone's tall for the, me, that means like five, eight, five, nine. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if you're a six footer out there, like, I don't know what a tall person looks like to you, you know? So it's about, you're welcome to see me. Like I've been doing this for 20 years. I recognize the box I get put in and it's a lovely box, but I just tell stories. I've never written a word about Jews because the whole universe is Jewish to me. You know, back to that Moscow trip, I wasn't kidding. Like, I get off the plane, I, like three hours in, I'm eating like glot kosher, amazing Georgian food. There's Hasidim everywhere I'm drinking. Like, you know, back in, you know, it's just, I was, this is so my world. I was doing an event right when I launched the book and my nephew, uh, I'm so happy for him, he just got engaged. But like, I knew that was happening. And you have to explain to non-religious people, like, why would you be going to the engagement? I'm like, because they got engaged. We all need to be there. It's a party. We have to dance. But uh, but that notion, literally, like, it's just a closed, I was talking to a moderator that I had never met before. Like, literally, I was like trying to like sneak out at the end after I'd signed whatever. And I was like, oh, I I, uh, I think maybe uh, I have to go a little sooner because, you know, I think my nephew got, she's like, he's engaged. I already, you know, like that idea of how it's, to me, like that's part of what this book is looking at is ideas of Jewish home and where they are. Like the world to me is like 99% Jewish. Everyone is connected. My world is so small, like those kind of things. You know, I say in the book, like someone like Shuli, he's more likely to bump into some Someone from Royal Hills, my made up Brooklyn neighborhood in Jerusalem than he has on like the Upper East Side. You know, it's like, so I'm just telling stories and my obligation is a story and I recognize their Jewishness. And when you ask me to step outside of that, I recognize my responsibility, which is gigantical if one has any readers of like how you're representing things. And the point is, there's nothing clearer to me. Like I work with my whole heart and soul. I can't care anymore. I can't work any harder. Like I'm building people. 
And as we see now, because we are hearing that very dangerous rhetoric, if you want to make a genocide, you say people are less than human, you compare them to animals, then you compare them to cockroaches, you remove their humanity. The idea if you have succeeded in drawing a dimensional person that they are human, that some are perfect, some are imperfect, some are fallible, some are back to Passover. That's part of the Haggadah. That's what we're talking about, right? There's, we don't say like, there's the, you know, one who doesn't know and the wise one. We also say there's a wicked one. Like that's the point. A complete world has everyone in it. If you are building a universe, it better be complete. And the idea that anyone's going to sit with a novel and enter into it, if there is, if you succeeded in building it, like, that's how we make empathy. That's why a writer often like can't get a cab somewhere or any attention. But like when you have a totalitarian regime, the reason they come for writers is because it's subversive. Because when you enter a world, you can't not care if it is caringly built. So, you know, I'm not the first one to have to deal with that. But, if you know, I'll keep mentioning Philip tonight. Like that idea where people are like, oh, controversial, whatever. Probably more people on this planet like let a Jew into their home through his novels than like in places that never even met a Jew. Like to, to think if you're going to read a book and say, look at these people acting human, you cannot, you know, take issue with like that is a connection, seeing the humanity in someone else. So no, I don't, I worry about my story and the weights and measures of it. And I better understand if I say someone's good and you think they're evil, or I say they're evil and you think they're good, then the book is broken. So yes, everything better be in there in the right amount. Or right amount. The only thing, and I was talking to my mother about it tonight, because she's like, oh, Phyllis thought the book was so funny. I think it's so sad. You know, Phyllis called from New Jersey. Anyway, but, <laughs> but that's the only thing where I recognize that's not my job. My job is to make sure everything's in its right place. But yes, I think it's a funny book. You know, it doesn't, I learned that in grad school. I'd write a story. I learned like it's like a tuning fork. I better know where the highs are and the lows emotionally, like where a sentence is supposed to end. But I'd put something up, and if people were supportive, I'd think, like, this is really funny. And they'd be like, oh, we support this story, but it's really sad. Or I think it's really sad. And they'd be like, I laugh my head off. And I was like, oh, that part, the reader's part, not your business. The writer's part, my business. But you did say that the book fails, this book fails, if it's not universal. Oh, this is so clear to me. Like, as a reader... I love Cormac McCarthy. You know, I think about that. Like horses to me are big dogs that you sit on. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm sure if you like live in Santa Fe or like, I don't know where, somewhere on the Brazos River, like probably you recognize what the brush is or what a juniper tree is doing. I, you know, I read those for story. Like if a book, this book, as I said, it's Jewishness. I have, I will add something else to the potential failure of this book. If somebody who really knows their stuff was like, well, that's the not the usual, that's not the Pesach Kenyan. This is more the handkerchief wedding. If you can break down the different Kenyanim and the meaning of contract to that degree, you better read this book and think nobody else can read this. Someone who's not Jewish or not even not religious can read it. Because when you're writing something, if it's sailing and you're a sailor, it better be so real to the person who knows that they think no one can access it. And then you know, why I love translation and feel fortunate when I'm like reading in, you know, Norway or I'm going to Italy next week, for which I'm thankful. There's plenty of Jews in Italy, but less so in Norway. I'm just saying when I'm like, oh, this is my book, but every word has been replaced with another word, you know, on top of it, like it, the instructions for a story better be in there. And it's, this is, when you ask about anti-Semitism and outsider stuff, these questions, it, it's, and it, here is one thing in this situation, but these get asked of Jewish writers, of African-American writers, of LGBTQ writers. Like, it's Game of Thrones week. Nobody says, like, oh, you want us to show, like, have you seen a dragon? Are you the mother of dragons? You know what I'm saying? Like, 
every book we enter into is a foreign world. Like I love, you know, Voltaire. I'm not French. I haven't been disemboweled like Cunegold. I'm not dead. You know, I, 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 that book makes me laugh. Hundreds, it's straight up funny. And I'm reading in translation and hundreds of years later, everything we read mostly, that's the fun of it is foreign. But certain things I feel like people subconsciously are more resistant to the notion, can I give this book to, or could someone else understand? And, and that, interests me. And what about just being a Jewish writer? And obviously I talked to you in the green room, like if you don't want to go there, we're going to have a lot fewer questions, especially at the JCC. No, recognize, you know, I'm obsessed with gray space. Like that's what I am tortured by. Like you get to be a lot of things. I've learned that it's active verbs. You know, back to New York, so many people, I, I license everyone here. You want to be a writer, you're all writers, you're all whatever you want to be. Like they're active verbs. You know what I'm saying? When you're writing, you're a writer. When you're swimming, you're a swimmer. When you're masturbating, you're a masturbator. You don't have to feel guilty right now. You know what I'm saying? Like these are specific active things. So I'm not sure what you're getting at. That that we wear different hats all the time. Like I super embrace my Jewish writerness when it is appropriate. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm all those things. I'm also not a Jewish writer. That's what I'm saying to you. When I'm composing, I am not a Jewish writer. I am just, I fall away. What I'm getting at is what obsesses me is dissociative states is what happens when you pray or do yoga or swimming. Like this idea of the creative space, like I am not thinking about Jews or anything. I'm telling a story. And then, you know, if I'm here, we are talking about Jewish culture and Jewish things, and I love that community support. And even the politics change, as American politics have shifted, I was, you know, fighting for that. I am not a hyphenate, you know. I think I see Cousin Marsha here, and that's the only accent I hear in the, Cousin Marsha. The only accents I ever heard are Boston. You know what I'm saying? Put the car in the, like... Like that idea, like we are Americans. My parents born here, grandparents, great grand. It's my great greats that came over. And for, you know, 18 years, I was, I am refused to be a hyphenate. I am as an American as anybody else. But back to this switch, back to people wanting to ghettoize again, back to the anti-Semitism. I was in Pittsburgh two days before and met people from that community. And two days later, I'm in Rochester and I have fucking police cars at my reading because Jews have to be afraid that I need police presence. You know what I'm saying? That walking around here, they have to buzz me in. We will not live this way. So yes, now I am 10 yarmulkes deep. I am as Jewish a writer as they come. Okay. Um. The Jerusalem section of the book is obviously very familiar to you. You yes. didn't just go in junior year. You made Aliyah. I lived there for a minute. Yeah, five, almost seven. Yeah. So first, can you just talk about how it, it's operating for you in the book? And then if you don't mind giving us just a snapshot of those years. Yeah. So I, I guess I don't know. Back to I countries with parliaments. Like, I don't know. That was the first time people, we didn't have money for travel. We weren't, I think I can trace back to that line. There's one line through my mom where I can get back to the Uh, the great, great grandparent who came here. I don't think anyone ever left from then, you know, like that I got a passport and went on a plane around the world for a year. Like that was gigantic. So I don't know if it was I countries, like had I moved to Ireland or Italy, like parliamentary government, like if I, but it was so mind boggling to me. I really fell in love, you know, with that time and that place and why I wrote the last book, Dinner at the Center of the Earth, with my peace. Like I moved there for the peace process Back to getting older and needing reading glasses this time and sitting here with gray temples. It's the first time I lived through enough history to say, like, it sounds crazy this week to be like, oh, I believe in the two-state solution. It's ruined, you know? 
it was right there. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, I just wanted to explore. I moved there. I was in graduate school and I was literally afraid I was going to miss it. Like, my, like, that's how inevitable and unstoppable peace between Israel and Palestine was and with Syria. And it was going to be a whole new world. Like, that's how... 96. Yeah. Yeah. Like, literally, I was going to miss it. You know, even after Rabin was killed, I remember where I was standing when I heard, you know, like, and that's the point of getting older. Like, people would tell me their Kennedy stories. Like, I remember that moment, you know, exactly who told me. But yeah, I just, the last book I I didn't want to write, I, I was looking for almost 20 years for a way to tell that story, back to the way books form. Like, you didn't need my diaries of heartbreak. Nobody needs my mansplaining lecture on Israel. You know, like, I just, this is a John Gardner concept. It's, as a writer, you, your writer shape comes from your reader shape, like how your brain works. I just find comfort in people who are willing to explore the questions. I don't want answers. I want to read and think and like a haiku for a book to move forward. You know, it's like if you're, if you're you, you, not everything's clean, no reality is clean. That's the point. We see a real rift now, but like if your friends get divorced, like we all know that one of you says like, I can't believe she cheated on him. And the other person, the couple says, I would have cheated on him five years earlier. Like he deserved, you know, you have all the facts, but like, I, I just wanted to write a book where people would reflect like, think about how they think. There was no, literally, still the Haggadah was harder to tour with, but I wanted to write an Israel-Palestine book where people just, anyone who's going to read that book, and one of the things I took away from Yeshiva, this rabbi, uh, one of my favorite quotes, literally, this guy from his class, everyone either, again, has a beard to the floor or is not at all religious. He knew how to mint them or break them, like there was no middle ground, but I did love that he said, he goes, uh, anyone more religious than me is a fanatic. I always like that. <laughs> But nobody thinks their politics are crazy. Everyone's like, oh, I'm center a little bit one way. Maybe they know they like tip. But uh, I spent so much time writing that Jerusalem. It made me want to write the, the Jerusalem in this book is my I lived in this neighborhood called Nachlaot, which literally it's like outside of time and space. You know, you know, right over here, those houses where it's like a weird village, you know, by West End. And you're like, what is it to go through that gate and live in a little village in Manhattan? But Nachlaot it, it really was like outside of time and space. And I lived in a little Bukharian triangle of Nachlaot. And, and this was, you know, we didn't have iPhones then and whatever. Like just that my body, like having to learn all the alleyways to get lost in your own neighborhood. I loved it so much. So after the book that is a concrete conflict, Jerusalem and Ilkuds and that thing, I wanted to write, this book takes place with Shuli. This is a mystical dream, Jerusalem. This is the Jerusalem of like that other kind of Jerusalem outside of time and space. You, you once uh, said or wrote, you know when I left Israel, when I wasn't willing to die there anymore. When I moved to Israel, suicide bombers would blow themselves up and my mother would say, come home. And I'd say, I'm willing to die. I was willing to die for peace, I really was. When I understood that people were dying, but there'd be no progress, that's when I became afraid. I really wasn't afraid when I moved there. I was afraid when I left. Um, uh, by the way, if this night looks at all smooth, like, thank you for your preparation. You have gone so deep, but, that, uh, uh, but that really did strike that, me yeah. considering the moment we're in. Yes. Cause that's it. I, there are things worth like, that's the point. I am not, we have a, we have an emergency. You want to talk about national emergencies that presidents need to declare, like, uh, back to people say, oh, they say like, I'm afraid to go to Israel. Friends know, like, I just know, you know, this critic is, it doesn't have to be a critic, but someone I, you know, reached out to me, they're going to Israel for the first time, do I have to be afraid or whatever? 
literally, if you count up every body from every war that Israel has ever fought for the last hundred years, it's about 18 months of our gun deaths in this country. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? I am not willing to die for this. Back to how you read a contract or the Torah or the Constitution, I am not willing to die for this plague, for this insane plague of gun deaths that our children have to do live fire drills for no reason. Today, the schools were closed because an 18-year-old girl who was not well, who killed herself, got off a plane and bought a shotgun and ammo today and we had to close down a district you know in Colorado because she was obsessed with why the news is not covering why can an 18 year old who's clearly not well get off a plane and walk out with a shotgun so there are the things that I am not willing to die for and then there are the things for this to be a just country where people feel safe and can find refuge I will die for I'm not looking to die I am not Mm. brave but yes when I moved to Israel and peace was being made and there were enemies those were my two sides it wasn't Israel Palestine it was people who wanted their children to walk to school safe and come home safe. And I thought there can be a cost for changing the world and I was willing to be a part of it. And when I understood after Intifada 2 that both sides were trying to burn the whole thing down, then I got really scared. I just know that there are some writers out there and you teach writing and yes, I'd love I to do. just get a sense of what, are there sort of a few tenets that you offer yes. for those who are struggling or thinking what's the key to this yes. and also what when do you find the time especially now that you're a dad of a young child oh uh you're that's uh so nice there are always writers in the room and yeah sometimes I like say to my students I'm like your MFA is like just go home like there's something that's really clear to me so protecting your time like my friends that are doctors, like my you know buddy, you know runs the ICU uptown. Like I don't show up there with a six pack during the day and being like, "What do you do? like? Can I accept your FedEx package?" No, because I won't concentrate all day long. So protect your time. That is the modern world. Like students, I really backed. I mentioned dissociative states. This whole room, and by the way, that's the beautiful thing. When I started writing, I thought there was one shelf with room for one book on it. Like everyone's success feeds success. When you have a, like I wrote, I have a successful, I started my career with short stories. Like when you have a collection that does well, it just makes room for more short story collections. You know, like one comes before, one comes next, and then they say it's dead, it's alive. Like, so we can all make it in this room, every one of us, like that's so lovely. But you may need 74 minutes till you have a great idea or 36 minutes or 18 minutes. We'll do high again. But like the idea now, students will tell me they're working for three hours and I'll be like, did you, how many times did you refresh your phone, check your Instagram, get a Snapchat? You know, I'm like, you didn't work for three hours. You worked for 181 minute sessions. So the main best thing for any writer, maybe our brains will change over time, but right now you need to shut your devices, protect your time. And if we're talking about my religious upbringing, it is the idea of sacred time and sacred Mm -hmm. space of Makom Kavua, if you, just like praying, there's a reason that we do these things in a repetitive time while we're doing a seasonal holiday this week. If you sit six days a week, you know, if you sit Zitzfleisch, if you sit in that chair in the same place, in the same way for the same period of time, I promise you no one, give me three hours a day, let's start with one. Give me 90 minutes a day for two weeks where you sit in that same chair and turn everything off. You don't have to write a word. I promise you no one will make it two weeks in here and not be typing. You'll be bored to death. You'll have to create. I want to wish you all a very Zissin Pesach. And thank you, Saul, wherever you are, for supporting me 10 years. And thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure.
That was Nathan Englander talking to Abigail Pogrebin. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Our music was written and performed by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes, and if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome, and be sure to subscribe for future episodes. Welcome.